Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this opportunity to dive into your word. We pray that it would be fruitful, inspiring, convicting, and challenging, and ultimately help us to grow deeper in relationship with you. We pray, Lord, we would listen and be open to receive whatever you have in store for us. Every single one of us watching this, you knew that we would be, and that you have something specific in mind for each one of us. And so help us to be attentive to that, to set aside any worries or distractions, and to allow ourselves to encounter you who are the Word made flesh as we dive into Scripture. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, once again, you are seeing me here in my office because I, like a dingbat, um, was recording the Bible study last night in person. And when I went back to look at the recording, I could see live where it happened, where the audio was fine. And then I put my little audio clip on my belt and it hit the switch to turn it off and the audio just went out right at the beginning. So I'm re-recording this for you and trying to incorporate everything that we talked about last night. Uh, and so super glad that we have this available continuously for you on YouTube for those of you who can't make it in person, but we would love for you to join us in person on Mondays at 7.30. But without further ado, we are reading Luke 17, verses 5 through 10. Luke 17, verses 5 through 10. This is our gospel reading for the upcoming Sunday readings. This Sunday is the 27th Sunday in Ordinary Time. This gospel happens immediately after uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus that we heard this previous week. And it's part of this long kind of discourse Jesus is giving on the way to Jerusalem. And he's been in this one place talking to his disciples who are trying to learn from him. He's talking to the tax collectors and the sinners who are really being intrigued by what Jesus is saying and feeling included and not ostracized for once. And he's also talking to the Pharisees and the scribes who are trying to find a way to entrap him and don't like a lot of what he is saying. So it's this very multifaceted group that is there. Uh, at this particular point where Jesus is traveling on his way from the region of Galilee down to Jerusalem. We don't know exactly where, but what we do know is this passage is the very end of that, because then we have immediately after this him continuing on his journey to Jerusalem in verse 11. So this is the very end, what everything culminates towards. So all of these sayings on discipleship, the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, the dishonest steward, different teachings, this parable we had last week, all of that collectively, think of it as one discourse, all about the mercy of God and us needing to totally commit to God. Um, this last part caps it off in recognizing what does it look like to totally commit to him and recognize none of that commitment uh, is anything that we could earn. It's all about the grace of God and his mercy for us. So uh, with all of that being said, We'll uh, read a few times through Luke 17, starting in verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, 
Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your servant, who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here immediately and take your place at table? Would he not rather say to him, prepare something for me to eat? Put on your apron and wait on me while I eat and drink. You may eat and drink when I am finished. Is he grateful to that servant because he did what was commanded? So should it be with you. When you have done all you have been commanded, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done what we were obliged to do. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we have here a very familiar saying of Jesus that we see uh, repeated throughout the Gospels in the first few verses, and then we have something unique to the Gospel of Luke from verses 7 to 10 that you may not have heard or you may not recall. It's a very kind of obscure, difficult to understand passage. And so we're going to read through this a second time, and I invite you to listen more closely. See if a particular word, phrase, or detail stands out to you or resonates with you for any reason. Could spark a thought, something that speaks to you directly. And so it helps to kind of clear your mind of everything but the words as you hear them. And when something sparks a thought or a memory, an association, whatever it is, remember that and reflect on it. Ask God, why are you having this stand out to me? What are you trying to say to me or compel me to do? Final time through Luke 17, starting in verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. The Lord replied, If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your servant, who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, Come here immediately and take your place at table? Would he not rather say to him, prepare something for me to eat, put on your apron and wait on me while I eat and drink. You may eat and drink when I am finished. Is he grateful to that servant because he did what was commanded? So should it be with you. When you have done all you have been commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what we were obliged to do. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments, maybe pause this video right here and reflect on the things that stood out to you. Uh, maybe discuss with people you are with, if you're with anyone else, what stood out to you and why, what questions you have. Um, we're going to go through this passage line by line and see what we can draw out of it for our own faith and to better understand this passage for this upcoming Sunday. So starting in verse 5, there's been a little bit of an inter- uh, uh, dialogue here with Jesus prior to this to his disciples, talking about uh, being on your guard, making sure you don't lead any little ones astray or cause scandal. And that kind of relates to the fact that this uh, this rich man or person who would be an authority um, previous in the passage we heard last week is someone who did not live an appropriate life and had the consequences of that. So he's kind of showing specifically to his disciples, like, you need to recognize your actions have consequences and can lead people astray. And now it comes to this culmination in these sayings on faith and having the attitude of a servant. This saying, uh, or something like it, appears other places in Scripture. Uh, I'll read a few of them for you. Matthew 17, 20, this happens after the transfiguration in the Gospel of Matthew. They're coming down the mountain. The disciples who were not with Jesus are trying to heal this boy who has a demon, and they can't. And Jesus gets kind of upset. He says, um, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I endure you? Bring him here to me. And he heals the boy, and the demon comes out of him. And the disciples say uh, in private, Why could we not drive it out? And he says to them, Because of your little faith. 
Amen, I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you would say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Later on in Matthew, he says something almost identical when he's talking about the fig tree. He curses the fig tree, says it's not bearing fruit. It's a symbol for discipleship, that everything that you need to be doing needs to bear fruit. So in Matthew 21, 21, he says, If you have faith and do not waver, not only will you do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. Whatever you ask for in prayer with faith, you will receive. And then in Mark 11, Verse 23 uh, says the same thing after the uh, withered fig tree. He says, um, have faith in God. Whoever says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that he says that what he says will happen, it shall be done for him. Okay, so Jesus doubles down on this in Matthew. He says this, uh, similar things in Mark and this passage we have in Luke. And so uh, it's obviously a very important saying of Jesus to be repeated through all of this. And so the apostles here, the 12, they're the ones who come to the Lord in the midst of this whole crowd, and they ask Jesus, increase our faith. And this is why Jesus responds the way that he does, because what they're asking Jesus is to give them something automatically. Just say, increase our faith, Lord. Not really uh, speaking to the effort that's required on their part on their part. They know God can give whatever we ask, but when God talks about, or when Jesus talks about, like, ask of the Father anything and you will receive it in my name, it's always in the context of first having a right-ordered heart or a right-ordered life. So if you have the attitude of a disciple, if you've already laid down your life, you're willing to take up your cross and follow Jesus, then anything you ask of the Father, he will give you, because you then understand how you can ask of good things for, from the Father and rely on God as a Father to provide for you. And so what they're doing here is asking for something that Jesus, yes, he can give, but he wouldn't give because it requires human effort. It requires a human response. He cannot just simply make someone faithful. That would violate their free will. We have to choose to be faithful. We have to choose to respond. And so he's recognizing the smallness of their faith because they're misunderstanding what faith is. And then he says this phrase about the mustard seed, which is a very, very small seed. So what we really have to distinguish here is what is this faith that Jesus is talking about? When we use the word faith, it can mean a lot of different things. When we talk about the Catholic faith, we can talk about a set of beliefs and doctrines. And if we think of it that way, we're going to fall into a trap of thinking that, okay, if I do the right things, believe the right things, and behave the right way, then I'll get what's coming to me. Then my life will be good. And that's something called the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel that's promoted by a lot of televangelists and a lot of evangelical Christians uh, who are part of churches who make a lot of money because part of their premise is give to God and he will give back to you and good things will happen to you. Well, that doesn't reconcile with all the places in Scripture where Jesus says, um, you know, do not think that I have come to bring peace, but I come to bring division. Or where he says, uh, in your life you will have trouble. I tell you this so that you will have peace. Take courage. I have conquered the world. Like he warns us there will be suffering and persecution for his sake. You know, blessed are you who are persecuted for my name, for theirs will be the kingdom of God or, you know, whatever the, that beatitude says. And so uh, Jesus is very clear that life is not going to be very easy just because you're following him. And so faith isn't just some transactional thing. It's not a set of beliefs. The word faith in Greek, uh, pistis, it really can also be translated as like radical trust or obedience to God. And it reminds me of my children. You know, my children 
you know, they they don't always obey, like, you know, children don't, but they do have a radical trust in us as parents. My children never ask, like, are you going to feed me today? Are you going to take care of me today? Uh, are, am I still going to be part of this family by the end of the day? Like, they never ask that. It never even occurs to them that they wouldn't be provided for. And that's why Jesus always encourages the disciples to approach God as a child, to have a childlike faith, because that involves a radical surrender and humility to God and recognizing, like, I know that God is a good father who's going to provide for me. I don't even question it. Just like children don't question whether or not their parents are going to do that. And we see the horrifying effects when families don't provide for that, or when families are broken, or when there's abuse, or when there's trauma or violence, and how awful that is for those children, because they know, and we know culturally, that they deserve a parent and parents that will provide for them. And so we know that inherently because we have a God who does that for us. And so having faith is recognizing that all that we hope for is going to be fulfilled. We can trust God. In fact, that's the definition of faith we get in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, where it says, faith is a realization of what is hoped for and evidence of things not seen. And that's the second part of this, kind of the supernatural abundance or ability that comes with true faith, is recognizing all that we truly hope for, that we truly need, and our heart really desires, even though we may have disordered ways of thinking that will be fulfilled, Everything that we truly need to be fulfilled will be realized when we approach God in faith. Radical trust and obedience and knowing that he is a loving father who provides for his children. And evidence of things not seen, meaning there is some evidence of this cannot be explained by the natural order. Something supernatural is happening here. Okay? So that's what faith is when we're talking about this. And it's important to distinguish that this faith is not something that can be earned. It is, again, not a set of beliefs or practices. It is response to the free gift of grace that Jesus won for us on the cross. It's very important here to distinguish uh, a difference between Catholics and Protestants or other Christians, because most other Christians that are non-Catholics uh, ascribe to a belief that Martin Luther uh, ascribed to in the Protestant Reformation so about, for the past 500 years, this belief of sola fide, that we are saved or justified by faith alone, sola fide, only faith, okay? So all you need to do is have faith in Jesus, say that you are saved, and you will be saved. You are justified. Uh, you're responding to the free gift that Jesus won for us on the cross. You cannot earn your salvation. All you can do is respond to that free gift and accept it, okay? Uh, you cannot lose it. If you do something so heinous um, or sin in such a way, they might say like, oh, you weren't really saved in the first place, but it doesn't really matter the works that you do. Nothing can earn you your salvation, you're, not, you're only judged according to the faith that you have in Jesus, okay? Christian or Catholics, we also believe that we cannot earn our salvation. We only merit salvation because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, the grace he gives us, and we need to respond to that in faith. But we wouldn't, we wouldn't call that how we're justified completely. We would say that's an initial point of justification, and that that particularly happens at the moment of our baptism, where we're saying in faith, or others are saying on our behalf, we want to put aside the old sinful self and live new as new creations in Jesus Christ. This is part of the beauty of why the church baptizes infants, because as an infant, you don't have the idea that you're earning anything. You know, you are coming to God perfectly in total trust and obedience because you just have that radical trust like you do in your parents. You know, you don't have this sense of entitlement or like, I've earned my way to heaven or it's the works that I do. No. So recognizing that 
Uh, we have a similarity there, Catholics and Protestants. We believe that we are only initially justified by what Jesus did for us on the cross. We cannot earn our salvation. Only Jesus could merit that for us. It's a free gift of grace. We respond to it in faith, and that is part of what allows us to be saved. As Catholics, we believe that also has to be accompanied by baptism because that's what Jesus says. And when he's talking in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, he says, um, you know, only those who are baptized through water and the Spirit will have eternal life. Um, you know, it's clear he was baptized. He encourages the disciples to go baptize in all, uh, all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in Matthew 28, 20, or 19 and 20. So uh, that's something that he particularly mandates, models, and says this is what is required for salvation. Okay, So the Catechism says that, that baptism is necessary for salvation, that God chose to uh, attach salvation to baptism, but he himself is not bound by baptism in order to save people. So people can even be saved outside of baptism if God so chooses, but the ordinary means that that happens is through baptism. So pretty similar and aligned with Protestants, where the difference is, is our works. And that's going to come in in the second part of this gospel passage, which is why I think it's important to clarify what we believe about works, because this is something that is very misunderstood by Protestants about Catholics, and that Catholics can very easily misunderstand and fall into a trap of something called Pelagianism, which is a heresy that was condemned by the church in the early centuries. So, Protestants will mistakenly believe that Catholics think you can earn your way to heaven because we have all of these things about works. We believe in things like purgatory and indulgences, and that's all about working out your own salvation, even though it does say in Scripture, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Um, so there is some satisfaction we have in it. But what we actually believe is that once you make a commitment of faith, just like you would make a commitment in any relationship, you cannot then go about your life as if nothing has changed. When I got married to my wife, I made a commitment to her, and I could not then go about our lives as if we were still dating and go back and live with my parents or go and hang out with my friends in the same way without recognizing I'm now in a married relationship with my wife. It takes certain actions and works to show that I'm living up to that. Now, it doesn't earn me my marriage. My marriage happened because of that moment of commitment, but it also shows that I'm being faithful to that marriage and that at the end of time, when I am judged according to that relationship, it will show whether or not I lived up to that act of faith. And we have passages like this in Scripture, like in Revelation 22, 12, where Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. I bring with me the recompense. I will give to each according to his deeds. Not according to his faith, but according to his deeds. The only place in Scripture where it says the phrase faith alone happens in James 2, 24, where it says, See how a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So even though this is a doctrine of Protestantism, that you're saved by faith alone, the only place that phrase appears in all of Scripture is in the negative, saying you are not saved by faith alone. Now, there are plenty of other passages, like Ephesians 2.8, for example, where Protestants will say, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing, it's a gift of God. And we would say, yes, we absolutely agree with that, but it doesn't say by faith alone. We are saved only by faith in Jesus Christ, but that doesn't mean that's all that's necessary for us in the Christian life. Everywhere in Scripture, Jesus talks about the necessity to act, to lay down your life, to have total commitment to Jesus, to uh, do whatever uh, we do to the least ones is what we did to Jesus. In Matthew 25, the judgment of the nations, where he says, "Did you give? when did you give me food or give, me dr give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked? Uh, those things you, you did to these least brothers of mine, you did to me. And at the end, they're judged. 
the, the, they're separated from the left and the right, and some go into, into hell, and some go into eternal life. And so we take Jesus at his entire word. We don't just pick out different areas where it looks like, um, you know, it just takes faith. So I say all that because you might be in conversations with people who are evangelical Christians, Protestant Christians, who might make false accusations to Catholics saying things like, you think you can earn your salvation. You know, you do all of these, uh, you know, works because you think it's going to earn your way into heaven. We don't believe that. And in fact, what Jesus is saying here in this passage is reminding us that not only our works, but also our faith. Both of them are not things we can bring to God and say, hey, look how great we are. It's only the grace of God given to us in the first place and what Jesus did for us on the cross that has any worth. It's only our response to it that allows us to participate in it. And so he's saying this to kind of show the disciples, look, if you think that you're super great because of your faith or you want all of this faith and you think it's going to give you something special, think again. And if you think it's going to be because of your works and you're going to be treated especially, no, you are supposed to do what you're commanded to do and obliged to do because that's what the master has asked of you. But it doesn't earn you anything. Just as the end here, it says we are unprofitable servants. We have done what we were obliged to do. It's not like, oh, look at all the great things that I did, God. Now I earned my salvation. No. And so this passage, you could see it in two sections, the first of which talking about how, um, you know, we, you know, we believe um, in the doctrine of sola gratia, like only by grace, only by the grace of God do we even have any opportunity to be saved. So you could say here that the first section is about sola gratia is greater than sola fide, like grace alone versus faith alone. Um, and then the second section, grace alone versus works or faith with works. It's still only by the grace of God. And yes, we need to respond in faith. So if someone ever asks you if you're saved, a Protestant would probably expect you to say something like, yes, I was saved on this day when I gave my life to Jesus uh, completely and responded to that gift of faith and what he did for me on the cross. But as a Catholic, the real appropriate and the real scriptural answer is, well, yes, I was saved when Jesus died for me on the cross and at the moment of my baptism. I am being saved every day by the grace God pours out in my life through the sacraments and through you know the different things that happen. And I will one day be saved when I die and am judged and go into eternal life or when Jesus comes again. And so it's an ongoing process, just like every relationship and every commitment is an ongoing process. It's not just a moment of marriage and now I can behave however I want. No, the married life ex uh, is expected to accompany certain works, okay? So I know that's kind of a bit of a diatribe there, but I think it's an important distinction for us theologically to know about the differences between Catholics and Protestants and why we talk so much about works of mercy and charity and providing for the needs of the poor, not because we think it's going to get us brownie points in heaven, and if you think that, you're falling into a trap, but because it's something that Jesus commanded of us. And if we truly have the faith uh, that allows us to respond to the free gift of salvation, it should be accompanied by works because that's what it says elsewhere in the book of James, where it says that you are not justified by faith alone, but by works. It also says... Do you want proof, you ignoramus, that faith without works is useless? It says elsewhere, faith without works is dead. So if you want to read that, that's in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. One of the best areas in scripture to show that if someone presents an argument about faith alone, not accompanied by works, it completely is contradicted by scripture in that particular passage. James 2, 14 to 26. All of that is important as I said, because there was a heresy in the early church 
called Pelagianism. And Pelagianism basically was, it was promoted by the uh, heretic Pelagius, who basically thought we could earn our way to heaven. That was based on good things that you did. That got you your salvation. If you did the things that Jesus asked of you, that was what made you holy and righteous before God. And yes, good works sanctify us. They make us holier. They make us more saint-like. But in order to be justified and righteous before God, seeming as we have earned or uh, received any form of salvation, we can't do that for ourselves. We're broken. We're fallen. We're stained by original sin. We have what's called concupiscence, which is a tendency to sin constantly. We will never be free of sin in this life completely. We'll be affected by it in our outside world, and we'll probably continue to commit it in some small capacity in our thoughts, words, and actions our entire life. That's why we have this ongoing freedom given to us in confession. But because of that fallen nature, we can't save ourselves. It's impossible. So that was a heresy condemned by the church. And so when the apostles are coming to Jesus, and they come to him in other places like James and John, Lord, let us sit at your right and your left, or who among us is the greatest? Jesus constantly uses these examples or teachings to try and bring them back down and recognize, help them recognize you cannot earn this. This is something that was given. I think it says in John 15, 16, it was not you who chose me, but I who chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit that would remain. Okay, but it also says, I believe in John 14, 12, amen, amen, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and even greater ones than these because I am going to the Father. So, Radical faith in Jesus can have radically supernatural fruits here in this life, but that doesn't mean that we're anything special. It means that God is special, that Jesus is special. Doing good works is something that we are meant to do to show that we have the faith that we've committed to, and we will be judged according to our works, the things we've done or the things we have failed to do, but it does not earn us salvation. Only Jesus earns us our salvation. Only through him can we be saved, and we mark that moment of salvation by baptism. I hope that clears that up if you've ever had questions about that, because as we talk about faith, that's an important thing to know. So that's what faith is. They ask, increase our faith. The Lord replies, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. This goes back to that passage I just mentioned from John 14, where Jesus says, you will do greater works than me. And Jesus did supernatural things. He brought people back to life. He turned bread and wine into his body and his blood, okay? I was at a conference recently, and um, someone was talking about the uh, saint, the Eastern saint, uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa. And he had some uh, arguments for uh, the Eucharist. And this person who was speaking talked about the fact that when you think about miracles and things that supernaturally happen, what's really happening is that God is doing something locally and immediately that would normally have happened everywhere or anywhere over time, okay? So, for instance, I know that's kind of an obscure thing to think about, but God is doing locally and immediately what would normally happen anywhere or everywhere over a span of time, okay? So, when God brings about a healing in someone's body, our body can heal us. It's always working to heal us naturally, but he allows that to happen in a supernaturally immediate way. Or when we die, we will be completely restored and healed in the resurrected life. And so God is allowing some part of that to happen locally and immediately. Uh, for instance, when Jesus turns water into wine at the wedding at Cana, that was something locally and immediately that happened. However, grapes turn water into wine slowly over time all over the place. And so it's part of the natural order. When we eat bread and when we drink uh, wine, it becomes part of our body and our bloodstream. 
just as Jesus is able to turn bread and wine into his flesh and blood supernaturally in an immediate way, we all do that in a normal way over a period of time, just through digestion. And so that's why it says in scripture, what father among you would give his son who asks for bread a stone? That's contradictory to the natural order because a stone can never become bread and a bread can never become stone. It might become hard if you leave it out, but it's not going to become an actual rock. Uh, It might feel like it, might taste like it, but it's not really a rock. And so miracles and supernatural things that Jesus does or that God allows to happen are things that would normally happen over a longer span of time or as part of the natural order, but happen in a local and very uh, uh, supernatural, quick, immediate way. And so here, I bring this up because a tree being uprooted and planted in the sea, that would happen everywhere over time. As sea sea levels rise and fall, as trees die, fall into rivers, get waterlogged, like that's not anything impressive. But the miraculous things that God allows his followers to do, that God works through us to do, are things that are part of the natural order. And I think that's an important distinction to make because sometimes we ask God of things that are just not logically possible. We need to recognize like, okay, what are some things that God can do in my life supernaturally that would be miraculous? Um, and how are those things possible? The, the question is answered by, is it something that would happen naturally over a longer span of time? Okay. Um, so a mustard seed is a very, very small seed. It's about a millimeter to two millimeters in size. Some people argue it's the smallest seed around. I don't think it is. There are smaller seeds than that. If you do any gardening, you know those frustrating tiny seeds that you're trying to get in there. But it is very, very small. It may have been the smallest seed um, of that region or at that time. But the point is that it's something very, very tiny. And the mustard seed has symbolized um, kind of this idea of uh, humility and smallness uh, in other religious traditions. There's a famous story um, that someone approached the Buddha uh, Siddhartha Gautama and asked him um, that to save someone in uh, their family who was suffering and dying. And so he tells this person, go find a family who's never experienced loss or suffering and grab a handful of mustard seeds from them and bring them back to me. And this person goes around and they can't find a single family who's never experienced loss or suffering. And he realizes humbly in that moment that this is an inevitable part of human life. And it's very humbling for him to begin to accept the fact that this is just what is going to happen. And so the mustard seed in that story is kind of this hypothetical representation of the fact that we are meant to be humble and small and recognize our place before God. Uh, And that shows up here. So the mustard seed and its smallness shows up in a lot of different places. Uh, A mulberry tree is a very large bushy tree. It may have been one of uh, the largest, if not the largest trees of that region at that time. And if you've ever seen one, they're very thick and dense, and they kind of shoot upward uh, in the bushiness that they are. A lot of, I think there's another passage about all of the birds or crows of the air hiding in the, you know, the branches of the mulberry tree, or maybe it's just a different kind of tree, but kind of has that imagery. And a mulberry tree is uh, commonly used as a symbol for patience, because the mulberry tree will not sprout or bud until like the very last, after the very last day of frost. It's almost like the tree is waiting to make sure there's absolutely no frost yet uh, left in the season, and then it will choose to bud. So it's this moment of patience. But then once it buds, it buds almost immediately and abundantly. And if you've ever seen mulberries, they're these long, like blackberry-looking berries, um, and it's, they're very rich in color and very beautiful. 
And so patience in the the waiting, but then also wisdom, because when you act at the right time and in the right way, it bears supernatural fruit. And that's why wisdom is one of the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so the mulberry tree, what he's saying here basically is if you you recognize your smallness, your dependence on God, approaching God like a child, and if you ask for God for things in that place of smallness, in trust and humility, then with patience and wisdom, supernatural things will come. Supernatural fruits will happen in your life. So that's kind of these agricultural metaphors that Luke here is using. And Luke uses them. He has the most parables of any other gospel. Um, you know, so he uses a lot of these common day parables that Jesus gave in his gospel, whereas the purposes of the other gospels were different, and so they don't include as many of those. But they do include some of these, this language in Matthew and Mark, as I previously said. Uh, and then we move into this passage about um, the attitude of a servant. And basically, the gist of this is, like, who among you, if you were a master, would say to your servant when they come in, like, come on, come in and shirk the rest of your responsibilities and just come eat and come reap your rewards because you worked hard today. Basically, the argument is, no, like, this is this person's responsibility. And they're not going to get any special benefit from just doing their responsibilities. It's what they've been obliged to do, and that's what it means to be a servant. That's what it means for us to follow God, is there are certain things that God has uh, entrusted us as a stewardship, certain gifts he's given. We don't get brownie points or salvation for using them, but we're still meant to use them. He's given us something, and we're meant to bear fruit and glorify God with them. But it's not like when we do that, we get a pat on the back and we get extra credit or bonus points. It's like, no, you can't earn your salvation, as I said before. Like The only extra credit and bonus points that are due are due to Jesus for everything that he did for us on the cross and all the gifts he pours out into our lives, the talents, the blessing, the life that we have. But we want to respond to that in faith and do what we've been asked to do. And so this doesn't happen at an improper time. However, elsewhere in Luke, previous to this, five chapters earlier, in Luke chapter 12, verse 37, there's these uh, vigilant and faithful servants And it said, blessed are those servants whom the master finds vigilant on his arrival. Amen, I say to you, he will gird himself, have them recline at table, and proceed to wait on them. So Luke here, this is kind of a more of an apocalyptic passage about the end of time, is saying like, if you are faithful, then yes, in the end, you will receive your reward. But don't expect that now, doing the things that you've been commanded to to do, the responsibilities that you have, Don't expect to get a special pat on the back for doing them or think that it's going to earn you anything or have some sense of religious entitlement because you're checking the boxes, you're going to mass, you're putting money in the collection, et cetera, et cetera. That's not what it's about. It's about what Jesus did for us. And, you know, Father Patrick's homily this past weekend was, uh, he mentioned entitlement. And it got me thinking about, you know, when I first started a ministry here at St. Timothy's, and this happens elsewhere too, but, um, you know, I, I I would hear every year or so um, someone would approach me asking for something that was like, just not possible, you know, like, um, an expedient preparation for a sacrament when the church says like, or the bishop says, no, it has to be like this. And yes, there are always, um, you know, uh, other options for people in dire health states or emergencies, but this was usually like, we don't want to commit to the time. We have a scheduling conflict, et cetera, you know, and we want to be flexible and sympathetic to that. And, uh, there's good things out there that people can be doing, but, you know, they, they wanted accommodations that I, we could not give them. And the argument they would usually make are things like this. Um, my, my child goes to Catholic school. They're already getting enough education there in their faith. Uh, we give a lot of money to the church. Here's our envelope number. 
We have a brick in the courtyard with our name on it because we or our parents helped build this church or we've been here since this church was founded, etc. And I find those things very like uh, off-putting because it speaks exactly to this idea that Jesus is speaking against. Like you have earned nothing. You've earned nothing. What you do is worthless before God because of your sin. So no matter all of the good works that you could do your entire life, if you put them on a scale and you put all your sins on the other side of the scale, the sins would weigh you down and you would go to hell. What Jesus does is he becomes the scale and he extends his hands for us on the cross, sheds his blood and says, this is the measure by which you will be measured by my sacrificial love, by my willingness to take your sin upon myself and die receive the punishments that are deserving of all of your sins so that you don't have to. And in response to that, who wouldn't want to give their life to that? Who wouldn't want to say, oh my gosh, I can't believe this gift that you've given me. It'd be like someone who's living like not a great life. And this very heroic person maybe uh, dives in front of them and takes a bullet for them. That would be like that person saying, cool, thanks. I'm going to keep going, live, living on my messed up life. And I think you could find countless examples of people who were, you know, bottom of the barrel in terms of their life, like hit, hit rock bottom and something happened where they had a near-death experience or someone sacrificed themselves for them or whatever it is. And they recognize like, I've been given a gift of a second chance and I'm not going to waste it. And that's really what baptism is. And that's really what responding to that gift of faith is all about. Jesus gave me a second chance and I'm not going to waste it. I'm not going to sit here and act as though, oh no, I deserve this second chance. Like, no, it's a gift. Anyone who's had a near-death experience or who's told you they got a second chance at life will tell you that. It's nothing they earned, nothing they, you know, merited for themselves. And yet our entire world is centered around this kind of resume identity. Look at everything that I have done and can do. And it's all oriented toward what else is left for you to do. How much more money, how many more experiences, travel, relationships, luxuries can you get in your life before you die? Because that is what the world tells us it's all about. But in the Christian life, it's recognizing the opposite of that, that all of this is gift. It's a complete and total gift. And so for us, as we look over this passage and reflect on it this week, and we ask the question, what does this mean for me? I think there's two things that we need to continuously come back to. And that first is, is my faith having supernatural fruit in my life? Going back to the first part of this, not because we've earned anything, but do we have the type of faith that bears supernatural fruit? And by that, I mean, is God doing, in some sense, like I said before, locally and immediately what may have happened naturally over a longer period of time? Maybe he's creating a lot of energy around a community that you're building, or you're using certain gifts and people are uh, giving you really great feedback, or it, you will, it allows you to serve others and they're being blessed by it. It's not, it's not for yourself. It's something that blesses others. Does your faith have supernatural fruit? And if not, why not? Is there something standing in the way? So that's the first thing. And the second thing has to do with works. And that has to do with, am I doing everything that I've been commanded to do? like the servant here in this passage. Am I doing everything that I've been commanded to do? Or am I doing just enough to where I think I've earned the right of being called a good person, just enough so I don't go to hell, doing the bare minimum, 
Or am I living my life in such a way that I want to get to heaven? And not only do I want to get there, I want to run there and I want to bring as many people on that race with me as possible. And the way that we do that is we're faithful to the responsibilities that we've been given. So if you're a child honoring and respecting your parents, doing your household chores, or if you live at home, if you're a student doing your homework, turning it in on time, not procrastinating, if you are you know, a citizen paying your taxes, uh, ensuring that you are following the law, if you are uh, an employee meeting your deadlines, not complaining, collaborating, doing the things in your job description, helping others, you know, allowing the company to thrive, if you are married, you know, ensuring that you're being faithful to your spouse, not just not cheating on them, but actually sacrificially loving them each day, loving your children if you're a parent, providing for them, spending time with them. If you're a grandparent, the same thing. If you're, you know, any other responsibility, are you doing the things that are expected of that role or that responsibility? And are you doing them faithfully? Because if you can say yes in all of those small ways to the things you've already been given, when the big supernatural or abundant thing comes or the big risky question or opportunity that God presents to you comes, it'll be so much easier to say yes to that because you've been saying yes in small ways each and every day by doing the things that you're responsible for, doing the things that God has commanded you. Yes, following the Ten Commandments, avoiding sin, but also recognizing where in my life do I have responsibilities and where have I been procrastinating or shirking them? Is there certain things that need to be done for my family around the house? Do I need to get my finances in order? Do I need to tidy up my workspace? Do I need to really finally have that conversation uh, with that family member or that person at work? Do I need to finally reconcile with that long lost friend or that person in my family because we've been fighting for 30 years and nobody knows why? Do I really need to apologize to my children despite wanting them to have the faith that I have recognizing I may have pushed it on them and as a result push them away and there's this divide and how do I approach them in love and accept them for where they are and continue to invite them and pray for them and encourage them but also not require that they have to do certain things in order for me to love them you know so many different things that are part of our human experience that come into this question am I doing the things that God has commanded me so is my faith bearing supernatural fruit why or why not Am I doing the things that God has commanded me to do? Think about those things this week as you pray over this passage and recognize if we do have that childlike, complete radical trust and obedient faith in God, incredible things can happen. We will fulfill that promise of Jesus doing greater things than he did. And that has happened in the lives of the saints and the lives of countless people and in the way that the church has exponentially grown since the time of Jesus. We can be a part of that too if we can set aside our entitlement Set aside the checklist mentality, the to-do list mentality of our faith and think that we've earned anything and recognize all of this is a free gift and I'm responding to that and recognizing that other people need to know about this beautiful gift that they're searching for because there's so many other places in this life that they can find uh, sorry excuses and shallow uh, uh, alternatives to that gift that aren't going to make them happy. So how do I fulfill that responsibility to respond in faith and to share that faith with others and to do so by doing works? that glorify God, not earn us anything, but help others to know him. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for this word. Let it challenge us. Help us to recognize our preconceived notions about our own entitlement. Help us to be humbled and recognizing all that we have and all that we are is gift, and that no amount of faith and no amount of works can earn us our way to heaven. Only the grace that we receive from what you did for us on the cross justifies us. But when we commit to that relationship, when we respond, 
And that means we have to live our life a certain way. And if we don't, we will be judged accordingly. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be judged rightly and justly, and that we would live our lives in such a way that that moment of judgment would be one of joy and confirmation that we have lived our lives in such a way that glorifies you and not ourselves. Help us to have supernaturally abundant faith and help us to do all the things that you command to us to do. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.